Hello and welcome to the Leaders with Ambition podcast series, the podcast that delves deep into the careers of some of the most successful leaders working in professional services firms across the UK, US and internationally. We aim to discover the secrets behind their success, the challenges they have overcome and to find out what traits make a successful leader. So hello and welcome to the latest in the Leaders with Ambition podcast series. And today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my guest, Susie Pugsley. Susie is an NED and also a marketing and BD consultant to professional services firms. She's currently in a project role at BDB Pittman's as a BD and marketing director. And she is also head of program management at the Managing Partners Forum. This is going to be such an interesting and inspirational session today. Susie has had a really eclectic life, some really interesting roles along the way. One of the things I really love is that this real sense of family first, which underpins everything that Susie does. And I think it goes back even to when she was growing up and her parents being such strong role models for her. And this real sense of justice that that Susie's always had, you know, this real sense of right and wrong and wanting to really live her best life by what she believed as well throughout her career. So Susie's going to take us through her career. We've got a time in Sarajevo, which was a real, <laughs> had a real impact on Susie. And also from a young age, believing that she wanted to be a lawyer and she ended up working in law firms, so not too dissimilar. And, and I think this real sense of wanting to be family first that led her to be one of the first people that I'm aware of in the industry to have a flexible role at a very senior level, way before people work flexibly or from home. So lots lots for us to cover today. So without further ado, Susie, over to you to bring your career to life for us. So thank you very much. I know it's always odd when you hear somebody else talk about the life. <laughs> yeah. so, so I don't know, where would you like me to start? Right, right, right. where you grew up. Yeah, right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Wow. Well, I grew up in the north of England, so I am actually a northerner by heart. Don't let this accent fool you. <laughs> Although it, it, my accent has morphed and merged regarding wherever I've lived in the world. <laughs> but yeah, so I began up in Cheshire, sort of uh, Liverpool, Cheshire borders on the Wirral. And Moved south when I was four and discovered that people don't talk to you everywhere in the south. You know, in the north, everyone talks to you everywhere all the time. And I think I had a grounding as a child of everyone always talking and chatting, even if it's the lady next to you in Quicksafe. Um, so when I moved south and people a bit more reserved. But at four, yes, I moved down to Cheltenham and, yes, learned a lot through living in the countryside as opposed to up on the coast. I enjoyed my time there very much on my my father was a marketing director and then went on to be a management consultant. So his job took us from the north to the south. And then he's often, he moved jobs a lot. So I wonder where I got that from. And he traveled the country. And I think once we got to Cheltenham, my mother had got sick of traveling. So said, we're going to stay here. This you is ours. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. We're done. We're going to be in Cheltenham from now on. And they are still there. So... And that was it possible. worked. Your, your mother had the upper hand. I love it. And your dad got awarded an MBE as well, didn't they? Yeah, my father has always been, and my mother, they have quite a strong faith. They're always involved with the church and equally Methodist uh, is my background. So the Methodist work ethic and all about charitable giving and making sure you give back has been a strong tenant all through my life. My father got his MBE for founding a 
charity called one-to-one maths which is where prisoners teach uh, white-collar prisoners teach uh, illiterate prisoners to read and to do mathematics because the highest case of reoffending comes from a lack of education and it was Michael Gove actually that put my father forward for his MBE because of the work he did in a lot of prisons around the country and this was when my father was in his 70s (laughs) and prior to that he yes as always a strong charity ethic and he'd worked with the Prince's Trust uh, as well in terms of mentoring people and I remember you mentioning also your mum and who was a very solid person throughout your life but also when you and your sister had gone on to higher education then she started to work and she worked quite late in her life as well Well, yes. And she worked all the way through. But and I think that's probably where I get my belief that you can have a career and you don't have to give up your family life to do it. As my mum said, you know, she was the most financially lucrative way of approaching it for her, but it certainly it kept her sane. So she was a counsellor. She should begun in, in nursing back in the 50s, but then moved into counselling and did a lot of yeah. qualifications in counselling. But majority of marriage guidance counselling and was often heard on the radio, Seven Sound in Gloucester, commenting on whatever celebrity divorce had gone on then. So very much worked around us. And then when we left home, obviously increased Uh, that exponentially but continued and she moved into reparation work disaffected youth who were vandalizing or causing issues or having drug problems and had caused harm to other people my mother was the counselor in the middle helping them because part of your limited sentence is to make reparation to the person you find so she did a lot of work with that so my mother even though she is now 84 and only gave up work two years ago And the only reason she gave up work and still does a little bit on the side is that unfortunately my father has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and has had to move into care. So she couldn't continue on working at the level she had done. She didn't feel it was fair on her clients. And I was like, I love that. Yeah, she still would have been going. <laughs> she'd still be going now. Yeah. And I think there's that that's interesting, isn't it? Talking about your mum and dad there. And I know also your granddad had a he had a big role in social developing social housing, didn't he, in the North? Yes, he founded the Liverpool Housing Trust and he worked in his early life. He was a shipping clerk, so a reserve profession during the war. So he was in shipping up in the docks in Liverpool as a clerk in the office. But he later in life moved into, again, through the Methodist Church housing and then founding the Liverpool Housing Trust, where he was telling me how he was given £50 and he bought 10 houses. Wow. <laughs> and then that was the beginning of it. And then uh, went and, and moved on. And there's actually there is a court up in, in uh, Merseyside called Morley Court. My grandfather's name was Eric Morley, like the person who invented oh, yeah. uh, Miss World. That was not my grandfather. Um, <laughs> but yes, there is a Morley Court named after him. Love and that. I, funnily enough, later in my career, then went into social housing quite a lot off the back of him. Yeah. How important it was to me. That's so good, isn't it? And I think that, you know, you, you talk about your values and I know your values are incredibly important to you, aren't they? And something you hold really dear. And you can see why you have that when you look at the family background. So when you, your first role then, you you decided, you, you were a little undecided about what you wanted to do. Hmm. I went to university having done lots of law courses through my sixth form where everyone said, oh, go and, you know, so I hung out at Richard's Butler and in a temple hall and, you know, various firms that were either law firms my father had used or be new. And, you know, the internships of those days where you, you got to uh, pop in and have a look around. And yes, I, I was convinced, I think, mainly from watching L.A. Law <laughs> and 
possibly <laughs> Elliot Bill rather than any reality. I should have probably watched more Rumpole of Bailey. Who needs reality? Yes, <laughs> that I was going to uh, be a lawyer and very much was focused on that. And But they all said, don't do a law degree. Do a degree you enjoy and are passionate about and then convert. So I did history and economics at Manchester and had a great time. And I joined the officer training corps up there, which sort of brought me into a military thing later. But then I came out of the university and realised, actually, I'm not cut out to be a lawyer. I have huge respect for people who can spend hours reading deeply factual information, great dry information, and remain awake, which I yeah. couldn't do. So I was... Uh, not good in the law degree then, in the law... In no, the law. I felt this was yeah. not the <laughs> job for me. So, but I still really enjoy intelligence and the, and the intricacies. And, and I think, for me, justice also made me realise that I would have liked to have joined the police, actually. But in those days, the Metropolitan Police wouldn't take you at my height or my yeah. lack of eyesight. And I didn't want to join a regional force. So when I realised that law wasn't so much about justice unless you went criminal justice, I decided I would look elsewhere and do something else with my life. And that was when my father, who had been for years saying you should go into marketing and PR, and I said, no. No, I don't want to do any of that. I went into PR. Um, so I uh, began an agency, which was, again, for me, if I was going to do marketing and PR, which I felt was a bit, it sounds awful because I've made my entire career out of it, but very frivolous. Um, so I wanted something more serious than that. So I went to do it for charities. So I joined an agency. Again, naming is a thing in my life. So Burnett Associates, but not the Burnett Associates. How they got away with that, I don't know. But a different would now, would they? Yeah. <laughs> who focused purely, Ken Burnett wrote an incredible book about relationship marketing, and that's how you get right. uh, fundraising, you know, through relationships. And it's yeah. all and that segued quite nicely into professional services later on, really. I reread his book quite recently, and it, it still holds true now, you know, 25 years later, that the target market for us was obviously people donating money to charitable causes and our clients were Greenpeace and National Canine Defence League, which is now called Dogs Trust, I think. Right, yeah. And yes, so mainly and the RNIB and the RNID and, you know, how you get uh, people to donate money to those causes. So that was my first foray into marketing and then I moved into social housing. You must have felt that that was your passion as well, quite quickly. Yes, it was quite amusing when you're 23 and your grandfather is sending you, you know, cuttings for jobs like the chief exec of a, you know, housing <laughs> uh, I might need a little bit more experience before I can go for that. Right. But yeah, so I went to Hanover Housing, which was for older people and became very passionate about lobbying for older people's rights. And, you know, and it was also at the time when my grandfather was also at an older stage of his life. So it was yeah. quite a segue. So I spent a lot of time traveling around and understanding what what social housing meant in this very quite niche older people mm. place but also seeing the wider you know registered social landlord market and getting to know because then there was a bigger grouping so yes I really enjoyed my time actually at Hanover but whilst I was there as I mentioned when I was at university I was in the officer training corps and at the end I went to Sandhurst and got my commission and I joined a territorial army as they were then uh, unit here in London, uh, Signals, Royal Corps Signals, and the opportunity came up for me to go on full-time service with the army. So I went over to, to Bosnia and served over there for a year, a bit longer than a year, actually. So, and was that something that you ever thought you would do? Because that's quite a, a big commitment, isn't it? Yes. It, funnily enough, I've always had a leaning towards military. I quite like order, quite like structure, which often is 
it's an interesting thing when you work in a marketing and a creative industry. People think that no structure is the way we all should be free flowing and creative. And I often say it's very hard to think outside a box if you're not in one already. So so we need to have some rules in order to be creative from there. And I enjoyed the military. I think it's quite comforting. I went to a school which was quite structured and strict. And when you go to university and everything goes, it's quite comforting to go back to when everyone's in a uniform and it was green. My uniform yeah. school was green and you knew when you had to get up and when you had to get to bed and when you had to and you learned and you got paid. I mean, when I got to university, all the courses and clubs you could join, like hockey club or rugby club or whatever club, you had to pay membership fees and you had to pay to play the sport and you had to pay for the privilege. Whereas the army stand was there going, well, come play hockey for us. We'll pay you 20 quid a match. And Fantastic. as a student in the early 90s, 20 quid goes a long way in Manchester. <laughs> yes. so, I was like, yeah, that'd much rather be. I'm in, yeah. <laughs> I joined that and then uh, learned all sorts of things I'd never have had the opportunity to do. And I, people will find this hard to believe, I was quite reserved and quite shy when I was younger and I couldn't, I found it very difficult to talk in front of large audiences or to present or to, to put myself in, a, in an environment where I wasn't, didn't know quite where I was. I mean, travelling on trains, I used to find very difficult as a child. And the military gave me the whole confidence of you constantly had to learn to present and come up with, you know, write your orders and motivate your soldiers. And the whole army ethos fits well with me because it is that as an officer, it's served to lead. Yeah. I'm in charge. And that's, that makes me laugh now when I look at all the, the TED talks and things you see now about the difference between leaders and managers. Managing, yeah. And it is that, but at the same time, you know, the army you have both you have to motivate and inspire and encourage but you also have to make incredibly difficult decisions mm-hmm. which will have a direct bearing on the lives of the people working for you so just saying to someone in a marketing thing I don't like your design or you know I think you should do a bit better on the data analysis piece it's very different to I want you to go up that hill with a gun and you might not come back yeah. so it is about very with that power comes responsibility and that you have to really earn it and you have to lead from the front you can't lead from the back what an amazing experience for you Susie and I know that I think one of the things that you talked about in the past with me was that you were working very closely with the women in Sarajevo to to try and help future generations to be able to to move forward as well yeah I mean the role I went out to do officially was to do press briefing because of my PR background they said oh yes whilst my army qualification is in communications and signals and radios uh, the role that was going at the time was for a press briefing officer but when I got there it turned out that that wasn't the role they needed to do there was a a psyops as the army liked to call it because you can't sew PR a psychological (laughs) operations role which was editing a magazine called Mostovi which means bridges in Sobokrat and it was actually one of those bridges It was about building bridges with the local community, upholding the Dayton Peace Agreement. And there are pillars of the Dayton Peace Agreement that you had to to promote into, you know, your information campaigns to make sure the local population were aware of them and what was going on. The rebuilding of the police force, the rebuilding of jurisprudence. I interviewed a lot of judges in The Hague, actually, and also in, in Bosnia, talking about how they were going to rebuild that. And there were 14 women to one man. I was also in a base where there were the opposite of that and (laughs) trying to bring together the fact that 
perhaps the masculine approach to communication was around look how wonderful we are and we've done all this for you whereas me going I think we need to reevaluate who is going to be rebuilding this country and it's going to be the mothers and the wives and the sisters in this country so we need to speak to the women so changed our messaging from big checks and football to recipes and horoscopes and how are you going to feel about seeing neighbours moving back who you may have burned their house down? So yeah. it was an interesting time. And the women often, because there were 14 women to one man, they were furious when I turned up because they didn't want a woman. They wanted a man who might be interested in a wife. It was a very deeply affecting mm. to see. And I think sometimes you can get removed from some of the world's horrors with you know floods and tsunamis and famines if the people don't look like you can you have as much empathy and I found in Bosnia it was very interesting that I saw my soldiers eyes you know this could be my child this could be my my family was that very close to home as close to home as it had been since World War II that they suddenly realized we have a much bigger part to play here but yeah it was a very interesting time and I met some very interesting people including General Sir Michael Jackson who is possibly the most terrifying man I've ever met (laughs) this is why you can deal with partners so well (laughs) So when you met General Jackson, you know, that wasn't really that frightening. (laughs) And, you know, I know that that was a huge and pivotal moment for you. And you said that you really did reassess what you wanted and, you know, how you were going to to develop yourself moving forward. So when you came back, what was the next step for you? When I returned, I realised that whilst I enjoyed very much working in the charity sector and social housing sector, that at some point charity also needs to begin somewhat at home and that I couldn't move forward if I wasn't didn't have the financial means yeah. to do what I wanted to do with my life. So I decided to pivot into a different industry and I went to technology actually and I did at time working in dot coms as they were then and lots of Australian companies and American companies and South African companies but the tendency because it was the dot com bubble to keep going bust as <laughs> After a few, you get a great learning curve, I think, when you go through that, Susie. I know it's, you learn a lot of things, particularly when you come into work one day and they go, "Well, you know, you're the marketing manager. Yeah, we don't need one of those anymore. We do need a ringtone product manager." And you're like, uh, "I can pivot." <laughs> I can do that. And I have a tendency that if you give me something, I will dive very deep into it. So I right. spent a very long time researching ringtones, and I brought the top ten to ringtones to uh, the UK where we would record in a bedroom every Sunday night off the radio. (laughs) That is a a claim to fame because a lot of people won't know what those are anymore, but I remember. (laughs) The plinky plonky sound. And then the other one was uh, Bollywood. It was the time Lagan came out when I was doing it and it was the first Bollywood film to win a Hollywood Oscar. And I suddenly looked at it at a time where music was quite generic for uh, Western music. Bollywood always had a tune which on a ringtone, which is just done on a, you know, one note at a time on a piano, as it was at the time, these were great. (laughs) The gramophone company of India agreed to see me and we had a long chat and they were like, yep, fine, you can make all our songs into ringtones. I was like, yeah. That's a good deal. I can imagine you were very popular back then. (laughs) Yes, very popular in certain parts of the country, I must say. But it was was really good fun, I must say. But it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do in my life long term. (laughs) And then I believe you had an introduction, didn't you, which was your first step into the yes. world of, of law. Yeah, so when um, the last dot-com that I worked for went pop, or rather they outsourced our department, we're left thinking, what shall I do next? And my brother-in-law 
was working at INTS and he had a friend who had gone to Norton Rose and was the marketing director there, David Shaw. And he said, do you want to apply? There's several roles going. They're looking for people. And I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> I wanted to be a lawyer, but what's this all about? And interestingly, it was my father who said, you won't survive in a law firm. You're too blunt. You know? I love that. So you're there going straight away in. Dad, <laughs> what's this? <laughs> yeah, so like, You've got to be very differential and, you know, you have to keep your mouth shut. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not sure this is for me, but I need a job. <laughs> and then I went to Norton Rose and I never looked back. I found my people and absolutely found my home because I bought my background knowledge of marketing and of technology and all these things and I went into e-media as it was then but digital marketing now and again went very deep having been quite a generalist marketer for a long time covering all sorts of things from events to campaigns to direct marketing and in the days we posted things to people to then deep dive into and I looked a lot at legal technology ended up winning a legal technology award for the Norton Rose website first personalised website prior to cookies being invented how old I am that does really (laughs) as you say you've found your people you found your place and I think one of the things you know I've talked about was this real feel that you wanted to add value so being able to directly equate this is what we're going to do and this is the result that's going to come out and that's how you started to get by partner buy-in wasn't it yeah I think there'd been a the way that marketing and, and business development have evolved within the legal sector was I joined it at a time where it was still only 12 years since it had been illegal to do any marketing yeah. in the law at all. You could put a brass plaque on your front door and that was it. And so you're still working with a generation of partners who didn't feel it was right, didn't want to do it, were not engaged and felt it was rather distasteful. And then a younger generation who knew it was the future and needed to get involved. But at the time, the type of people within law firm marketing then were often very much people who hadn't come from a marketing background and had either come from a legal background or from a secretarial background or they worked in law firms and they kind of fell into it. And I came at that pivotal point where people were looking outside. Yeah, uh, the more professional way of working for it. Yeah. And I do remember that, you know, and is it's any of us who work in professional services know it's, it's not for everyone and it is an acquired taste. You have to be comfortable in the environment. And it's I often have interesting conversations with, with lawyers about this. But when I went for my interview at Norton Rose, the person who interviewed me said, what qualifies you to come and work in a law firm? And I said, well, I know marketing because that's what I have been doing for the last few years as my uh, career. And I understand how to do my job. I said, I've been in the army, so I do know what a hierarchy looks like and how to manoeuvre within one of those. And I'm not easily frightened. And yeah. so there was I was a nanny and an au pair in my summer holidays as a child. So it's more frightening than anything, isn't it? Yeah. And they're like, perfect, your heart. And all words got effect. But it is that understanding the that a job title doesn't necessarily give you the power. And, and corporates are much more linear and much more distinct. You know, you know who's in charge and you know that partnerships are by the, you know, everyone's seen the herding cats analogies. They're by their very nature a lot more fluid. And who's in charge this week and who's in charge the next week. And that can be either used to your advantage mm-hmm. <laughs> or can be very confusing and frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I think with law, if you can establish that professional respect, and for me, that was just saying, you are coming from a point of thinking, you're just telling me what you want me to do. And I don't need you to tell me what you want me to do. I need you to tell me what you want to achieve. So let's turn that conversation into what do you want to get out of this And I'll tell you if that's the vehicle you should be using or another one or how we can get there. And let's measure if we actually achieve it. Um, Rather than just, I want an event, which is the 
kind of go to. I'm not saying that's changed massively over the last 25 years in terms of wanting an event, but it has slowly moved that dial of conversation towards strategic rather than just purely operational. And similarly for me, making sure that the what you're measuring and giving back to them, there is a tendency in marketing to measure outputs, not outcomes. So yeah. lawyers aren't really that interested in how many newsletters you created. They're much more interested in what did it achieve and how do you prove that? And some of that, and they it's hard in any walk of life for the intangibles of, you know, what did I get from this PR and what did I get from this? You know, so you've got to track the whole journey through and you've got to be more joined up in how you do that. Otherwise you don't prove your value. And that's always been my USP is why am I here? Why am I here and not someone else? Yeah. It's going to be offering you a different service. And I think that's one of the things that you and I have talked about as well, isn't it? That, that one of the reasons why you wanted to go more into consultancy as well was because you love going in there. You love seeing a problem. Your USP is getting your hands dirty, sorting it out. Yeah. And then when everything's going really well and business as usual, you're ready for the next challenge. <laughs> I know. And I think, and I was always reticent about going the consulting route. And my friend said, have you not noticed that you don't stay anywhere longer than two years anyway? <laughs> you are a consultant. Yes. Actually, yes. Okay. But it's that having, and I've been, I have to say, extremely fortunate. And I know I'm in an incredibly privileged position that I have, you know, a partner who is full-time working and, and yeah. has been in the same place for 22 years and will never leave, you know, and is very happy and content in their role that I know I can I have the um, take a chance more really yeah but I also think it's interesting you mentioned to me that when you were in your your permanent roles you're working incredibly hard but not necessarily as as hard on growing your network out Mm. and actually when you decided you wanted to do the more consultancy focused work that's when you realize that oh my gosh I do need a network and how do I go about growing that and to do that you had to almost step back into a permanent role didn't you and have this real clear strategy around it and what I did discover was that I had been training professionals lawyers accountants etc for years on networking and then I went out on my own and realized you need to now walk the walk. <laughs> and I had realized that what I hadn't focused on enough, and now I do teach on this as well, is, is it the right network? Because when I went out on my own in the beginning, I knew hundreds of lawyers. That was great. I had a fun, yeah. fabulous network. If anyone wanted a lawyer, I could get you one on any practitioner in any subject anywhere in the world. Marvellous. They weren't the people with the gift of the work. And I, my work. And I'd got so down in the weeds of my client's client that I'd forgotten who my client was going to be. That's and interesting. Mm. So it's saying, yes, when you're in-house and you're working, your clients are the clients of the firm and you need to focus on those but never forget as a service department and as a consultant by corollary your client is the internal client as well and yeah. who of that internal client has the gift of the work and we say it to our lawyers all the time when they're networking to say don't just randomly talk to people yeah. get through active listening and you know asking those important questions as to what the opportunities are and whether they actually are the decision maker and I've completely missed that point for myself. <laughs> oh, none of people are going to give me any work. I mean, I'll have a lovely time and have a lot of free lunches, but I won't get any work. So I ended up working completely out of industry, but with spin-offs. So lawyers who'd gone and set up businesses that were 
related to the law, like Resolex, where we did mediations on construction projects. Right. And so I was still working with lawyers and still doing the legal industry, but I wasn't doing what I did. I went out on my own after my first child and thinking, oh, this will be much simpler than having a full-time <laughs> job. Yes, I, I tell anyone who does that now, no. No, do it. Um, <laughs> so after I had my second child and I realised that childcare has to be paid for and people look at you yeah. like you're mad when you're going, well, I might have a day's work that week and I might have two days of work that week, but, you know, I can't guarantee you. And it's not great for your children to have many multiple people coming in and out of their lives. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to have to bite the bullet. So I got a call actually from someone saying, you've always said you'd be interested if this role came up and it's come up. So do you want to come over here? Would you come back in house? And I said, you know what? I would at this point, yes. But isn't that a positive thing that, you know, you've as family first for you always and you know, quite quickly recognise that for it to work for you and your, your family, then that was what you needed to do until you had the opportunity. And the long negotiation over, it was the same. When I first went out as a consultant, my, my, where I'd left Wink with Sherwood was my first client. And, you know, I did two days Love a week that. for them and that was great. But then I had my second child and then I realised that it was all becoming quite difficult. But... Howard Kendi were great because I sat down with him and I said, well, I'm only going to work in the office three days a week. And bearing in mind, this is 2014. This is unheard of, isn't it? And I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing five days. So that's just that. So it's up to you whether you are happy. And Mm -hmm. I said, I'm happy to be available five days a week. So half a day on a Monday, half a day on a Friday, but not in the office. I'll be remote. Hence, I built this office. (laughs) But um, yes, and, and that's why when COVID happened and everything else, nothing changed for me really yeah. <laughs> because I've always worked in this way I've always been remote part of the time and in part of the time and out part of the time and you know it's it wasn't a big shift but for some people it was a really Massive. difficult transition. How did you make it work though because as you say you know this hadn't happened before it wasn't you know you are a trailblazer for that you, you couldn't follow in anyone else's footsteps <laughs> so you know you, there's going to be mistakes that were made and sacrifices I'm sure on both sides how did you feel and how did you make it work? I think I was extremely fortunate with the the management team I had around me at the time in that they we all began together really at the same time it was a clean sweep so we kind of were making our own rules up as we went along and I had a boss called Ian Harvey who's sadly uh, passed away but he very much was of the opinion that if the work got done it didn't bother him when it was done and that's a mantra that I'm kind of used to my husband at JP Morgan they have the same one they don't really care about the hours you work as long as what you need to achieve is achieved right. you, you figure out how you want to do it and at any point if it's not being achieved then you have to recalibrate and think about it and it wasn't always easy because there were you know rebrands and office moves and mergers and things which meant having to come in on weekends which didn't sit very well but and having to cancel holidays and whatever but sometimes you have to say there is a hiatus in your life you have to get over but I think the biggest validation for me was when I came to move on because it had reached a point where they wanted they did want somebody five days a week full time. And that for me was a, a deal breaker that a couple of the partners went, I didn't even realise you weren't. <laughs> well, that speaks for all you, doesn't it? Yeah. I was like, you didn't realise? They were like, no, because I spoke to you every day. I went, I know. Yeah. And you never came up to my floor. It was a single site office. It wasn't like we were spread across the world. But I, mean, I think now it's so much easier because the technology is so much better. Yeah those days I mean I do miss telephones I have to say I do miss just picking up a phone and talking to someone but no one has a phone anymore <laughs> no, it's nice everything's everything's teams now isn't it if you're going to talk to somebody it's so different I see you know obviously the satisfaction that you've got in your consultancy based career then I know you're really passionate 
about your career, aren't you? And you're really passionate about the work that you do with your clients. So how do you decide which roles you're going to do as part of your consultancy work? <laughs> I'm not sure I should answer that. Um, <laughs> for me, it has to be interesting. It also, if you are ever considering consulting, you have to do quite a lot of soul searching mm-hmm. and you will learn always as you go along. You will make mistakes. You'll go into places and go, this was a huge mistake. I should not have taken this on. Everybody's got those in their career, haven't they? (laughs) And then uh, other ones where you go, oh, I could stay here forever. Oh no, the contract's up. I've got to go now. But you learn where your strengths and weaknesses. And for me, it was sort of looking at myself and going, what do I bring to the party? What do I bring that day? Because you can, there are a lot of people in the industry and it's also quite a small niche community where we do all know each other you know all the consultants and the BD marketing directors we all swirl around each other um and it's knowing where your what's your USP and for me my USP has always been I am a change manager I am an agent for change so if you are merging or you have just merged or you are looking at where you are on your maturity curve and gone we need something different we need a fresh pair of eyes to come in and go is this working? Let's let's get to the crux of how we can reshape it and move forwards. But also in a very much more of a mid-market, medium-sized firm for me, because the huge, whilst I, I've done projects with, with large firms and magic server firms, et cetera, they are great, but they are, from a project basis, much slower. It is that yeah. speed boat. Change, isn't it, as you were talking about, that change cycle. And you, you can't make a real impact that quickly because there's layers and layers of yeah. things to get through. So I am more comfortable in the mid-market. I'm more comfortable with the places where I have real knowledge of the industry sectors that they're targeting and the client bases that they go after. So for me in BD, we can bring our own book of, you know, actually, funnily enough, one of my projects was for an accountancy firm who brought me in purely for my book of lawyers. And that so eventually that network that I'd established 20 years before came in handy. Came in handy, yeah. <laughs> it's like, we want to meet all these lawyers. Do you know them? I went, yep, I know most of them. So yeah. just opening <laughs> creating those. And I still get invited to their events. So yes, it's about that where you can have value, knowing who you are, what your value proposition is really, mm-hmm. uh, and also what you won't do. I mentor a lot of women wanting to return to work after having children and the number one conversation is oh I'll just go I'll just go for a lower job with fewer hours and it'll be interesting stressful like really because when you did that lower job earlier in your career did you find it less stressful (laughs) did you or did you just get paid less (laughs) and they're like well no because if you're passionate about what you do you will always do it to your ultimate nth degree so thinking that if you drop down a layer and then I fell into the trap of almost doing it myself <laughs> when I thought oh my school fees to pay maybe I should go in-house at a lower level and it was uh lovely Ed at RPC who sat me down and went what are you doing <laughs> and I was like I, this. <laughs> yeah, what doing? I don't want to go back in-house um, but sometimes it can be hard when you're your own IT department you're in your own finance department you're in your own uh, HR department <laughs> I had to write myself a letter to furlough myself. <laughs> you see, you're multi-talented as well, Susan. Oh, I love it. On my own HR department, dear Ms. Sidwell, you are now on furlough, kind of girls, the HR department. Signed, Ms. Sidwell. <laughs> because it's Sidwell Pugsley is my uh, business, which is my maiden name. So I thought, well, I'll mix it up a bit. But yes, it's just knowing what your value is. And, what, you know, you must retain value in who you are or you 
no one else will value you. You have to, um, you know, believe in yourself first. And it's knowing the threshold you won't go below. Because yeah. if you do go your below... Line, your baseline, yeah, what's the point in doing that? You're undervaluing your skill set and yourself, aren't you? Which you and you can end up just, you know, you end up paying them for you to go to work. It's like, yeah, that's it's not, I know it, it's good to be out and doing what you enjoy, but you have to to set that value margin. And then the other part is knowing what, what you're unwilling to accept in terms of... Yeah, how you want to be treated and how you wanted the relationship to work. And if you're not feeling that respect, it's always do the job and, and do it well, but move on. Yeah, move on quickly. <laughs> Somewhere else will like you. Yeah. You mentioned to me, you mentioned about your, your dad saying law's not going to be for you. You're going to have to have this deferential way of, of talking to people. And I think it's interesting. You and I talked about this in the past, haven't we? Whereby actually, that's not what partners want they want people that are specialist in their fields they are intelligent specialized people and that's what they want and that's what you're going going in saying isn't it you're not going in saying I can do your law specialism <laughs> I know and it's about not over promising and under delivering which was a key tenant back in the 90s where people would go yes I can do that I'll do anything yeah. I do anything you like and then of course couldn't couldn't do it and couldn't deliver it and also really honing in on what people want so whenever I start any conversation now it's what does success look like for you never right. assume that the person you're talking to has the same vision of success that you do because I may think oh it's you know hundreds of people or it's amazing impressions or LinkedIn likes or whatever it is they might think it's something completely different and there's only, there's only one partner ever that I had the interesting conversation with when I said no you have to give me an actual brief of what you want to achieve and he was like well I don't know what I want to achieve I'll know it when I see it <laughs> that's quite challenging <laughs> means we're never going to achieve it are we <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh that was a lot of redrawings <laughs> later but yeah it's you know getting under the skin of just and I love I've come to it later my father loved a book my goodness Charles Handy and the empty raincoat and feel the fear and do it anyway and all sorts of books that you should read on which I was like Ugh. and now I'm looking at above me at the whole bookcase of them and right. yeah. partner and smart collaboration and chimp paradoxes and you know maester and everyone else and you go yes yeah assimilate as much knowledge as you can and other people's thinking and then create your own yeah that's, that, that's a really good strap line there actually but you also invest in your personal development as well don't you as well as other people but you do genuinely and um, take the time to do that I do I love to learn and I'm not in a classic sense of I'm not one of the reasons I haven't got a chartered institute of marketing and I haven't got a master's or a PhD or an MBA or any of these things is that I'm not very good at lesson learning and actually when I taught for the military most of my lessons I'd drag them outside and would do them in the fields because I get very bored in a classroom environment yeah. <laughs> um, but I think you can learn a lot from watching and listening and asking questions constantly and putting yourself in a room with someone who's got a skill set which is completely alien to you and learning how that works with you. I spent a lot of time with finance directors and HR directors and IT directors going, yeah, but how does that work? And what's the impact for me? And what's the impact for the firm? And, and again, you know, I always encourage anyone I, I have working with me to go. And if they want to do formal qualifications, absolutely, I will, I will back them to the hilt. But it is about knowing who you are and how you assimilate knowledge. If you're a reader or if you're a watcher, someone who's addicted to, you know, podcasts and TED Talks and yeah. you know, 
Whereas for me, Radio 4 in the morning pretty much tells me everything I need to know. I don't need to pick up a newspaper. Right there. And, and what about, have you ever suffered from any imposter syndrome in your career? <laughs> have you ever also, you know, had difficult situations? Because you've dealt with a lot of men during your time. Has it been the case that you've always had a seat at the table? Or do you, have you had to develop your particular style that, is able to communicate with men in that capacity I think anyone who says they have never had imposter syndrome would be lying unless you are incredibly self-confident with no self-analysis uh, no self-awareness yes. <laughs> a couple of people spring to mind have written books but no I think for me yes absolutely there is a constant fear of Am I doing this right? Am I good enough? Is this? And then when you work in a highly intellectual environment with very clever people as well, you can often think, you know, was my grammar right? (laughs) Is that going to completely ruin how I've come across? And equally, we've talked about this before, but I'm not a particularly feminine Mm. person in my approach. I am a problem solver. I am, if we're to believe that men want to solve problems and women just want to listen, I think that's fairly black and white and there is a whole spectrum in between but I am more to the end of that spectrum of if you come to me with a problem I'll solve it yeah or I'll find a solution if you want me to and I have this conversation with my daughters who they come to me and go don't want you to interview you to listen and I'm like okay I love the caveat first. Mom, don't speak. Don't do anything. And then they'll come to me and go, now we want you to do something. And I'm like, right. <laughs> but yes. I've always everyone's found instances where they've you know been uncomfortable or been in uncomfortable situations mm. and as a woman in this world I find it highly uh, unusual if you'd gone through your entire life without coming up against some sexism and some, uh, you know inappropriate conversation but it's also about how you deal with them and I do love the new generation come through who just don't take it with that sort of glassy smile that we would give and just edge away in my generation it's now it's like don't speak to me like that (laughs) it's not gonna fly but I've always been told I'm quite scary I don't see it myself (laughs) (laughs) apparently Uh, and I think a lot of that give my mother credit on this because she is terrifying she's only five foot two but (laughs) one look and it's like a Paddington bear stare no yeah oh no yes we will definitely do what you want <laughs> so I always learn from her as you stand up and look someone in the eye and then go what did you say <laughs> sounds but, great your mom yeah. so what about highlights in your career then you've, you've got so many and sometimes when you look back on it and talk about your career you must then go wow <laughs> yeah it's suddenly <laughs> spun in a few different directions I had interestingly this conversation with my daughter last night in that I said you just never fear failure yeah you will learn so much more from your failings than you will from your successes and you know and if you do fail so what pick yourself up dust yourself off move on and part of my career path has come from going somewhere and spectacularly failing and going no this is not for me at all and I sincerely believe it's that kind of door closing window opening scenario of because technology business was not for me I ended up in the legal system which I hadn't thought I would do and that was the best thing ever being made redundant which I thought was the end of the world the day I got keys to my house with my first mortgage income turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me in my life so it's you know try anything and I think with my career it's always had a key tenant in the middle of it which is I know what I do 
who I do it for and how I deliver that has has morphed and changed according to where life has taken me really and keeping your values at very much at your your heart as well which I think is is so important isn't it and as um, a woman it's really important to know that I don't live to go to work yeah I work in order to live because you know we all need an income but it doesn't mean that you you know and I, I always say that whole adage of, you know, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But you can have a few wrong starts. But once you've found something that you really enjoy, you will find it it's yeah. you know, illuminating and it, it keeps your brain you know, exercised and your life happy. And you meet some fabulous people along the way and you make this great community in your career. And obviously, you've got one in your home life as well. But it is that just making sure you're in the right place for you. And yeah. All things flow from there. It, come, it all comes together, doesn't it? I think also, you know, I see one of your highlights is digital mentoring that you've done over the years because there's so many people's lives that you've actually touched or been involved with, whether it's you know, people in your team or whether it's partners that you've worked with as well. And that's that's something special, I think. It is, and it's lovely. And it's so funny how it can be years and years and then suddenly yeah. you'll get an email or a you know LinkedIn message from someone going, oh, you know when we talked about this back in... 2001 I'm like okay <laughs> that's it about in keeping that network alive and I I think mentoring to me is very important as as you say everything in my life has been about giving back I came from a long line of people that it's not all about take in life it's yeah. also about giving back hence the fact I do you know my non-exec role and I do I was a school governor and I do charity work but the, the flip side of that is making sure that where you can add value because yes I can help out at my local charity but where can I actually make a difference is with the experience that I've gained through my career and talking to women coming up and not just women I mentor men as well because now it's also important for men to realize that it's fine to be at home with your kids yeah my husband was an avant-garde man for this when he made it absolutely clear at work that he would be home to bathe his children when they were babies at 6 p.m he left a bank because they didn't think it was appropriate to stay at work all day and that was it went back to JP Morgan they were like we don't care that's great you know find your right place and for men to understand that they can do that as well it's not all on the woman it's not all on the mother to be doing these things and for mothers to go let them And and I think that actually did change during COVID as well. You know, I see with my teams before that, you would always see women leaving early, Mm. maybe having to come in late because they were dropping off or wanted to go to school plays or sports days. And and I know some of the guys would often say, well, I need to book a day's holiday because I need to go to this, which is a bit like, it's only going to be an hour unless you want to take a holiday. Whereas now I think it's accepted and expected. I think that's the right thing that men have to join a lot of the time ownership of, yeah, making the family work because it's it's hard, isn't it? I think it's really important (laughs) for the next generation, certainly for my daughters to see that my husband is very much, it's a partnership. We have equal careers. We equally share the load of of parenting and and household admin and everything else. It's not, girls, you're going to be cooking dinner and in the kitchen for the rest of your life. But equally, understanding that it's a partnership. And that in my career has been really important because I could have gone back in house a number of times and had some very chunky jobs, which I'm sure I would have enjoyed. But at the same time, knowing you've got to know what's important to you. And for me, my family always comes first. And you've got to have one foot on the ground. 
Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's the reality as well, isn't it? And I think that's good that you, you know, you acknowledge that and people are aware of it from day one. So your boundaries are set, aren't they, around what you will and not commit to. And so challenges then, what would you say have been your biggest challenges in your career? Well, childcare costs. <laughs> when I was starting out on my own, I think, and a part of a corollary to that is about guilt, about are you around enough? Are you around too much? Are you around? Am I, the guilt doesn't just extend to your family, it says to your work. Am I committed enough to my team if I'm only there three days a week? Am I committed enough to my children if I'm not there in those three days of the week? And how do I balance that? So I'd say that was a challenge. But the other thing is keeping when you're, Often, if you've stepped outside of, of your work environment for a while, things can disappear. I was off for two years with my second child because she didn't really fancy sleeping. And your network can vanish overnight. I mean, we're so lucky now with things like LinkedIn that you can pretty much keep it live. But it's getting yourself out there. And that is a challenge of making yourself remain relevant when some people seem to be very good at pumping out a lot of information about themselves all the time. And um, I'm not <laughs> so more of a watcher and go that's great yeah um, but yes keeping that alive and, and listening and that's that's a challenge when you've got other constraints on your time and at the moment where I've got elderly parents and children still in education and a career you can find yourself pulled in a lot of different directions lots of juggling happening Susie all the time and a few plays dropped along the way which is perfectly normal isn't it yeah. <laughs> and a few smashed <laughs> and so words of wisdom what would you give to Susie when she was uh, at university thinking she might go into law to Susie now <laughs> oh now then yes what would I say to me I would say you don't have to do what everybody else does that is um the classic of childhood is that we get into certain streams and we follow along that we must do this and we must do that and everyone else is doing this so that's what I'm going to do find your own path it might find you a while to discover that path but try a few avenues yeah. and you'll find the one that fits and again as I always say don't worry if you fail because that's how you learn. plan for it yeah. yeah it's how you learn and I've always been fairly financially cautious in that I was trying to, but I mean, when you're younger, debt is just terrifying. And it mm -hmm. still is now the debt that you can accumulate, but it's just be true and, and keep going. Is what I'll probably say is it will turn out all right in the end. if you just <laughs> keep keep going. Trying. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, great words of wisdom to end on there. Don't be afraid of failure. I think is such a key part of it, isn't it? And be true to yourself, as you say, you know, be, be your best self and and then you hope you'll be happy at the end of the day that's that's half the battle isn't it and um, but thank you Susie so much for your time today it has been an absolute pleasure I've really enjoyed talking to you and lots of takeaways for people I'm sure from today's podcast well it's been delightful thank you very much for the opportunity 